Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to the Graceland Church Podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus and love our neighbor for the good of the city. I want to talk to you tonight about grace. Grace is unmerited favor. That's the definition. It's kindness, it's favor, it's blessing that we don't deserve. Grace means that our salvation is all his work and none of our work. Our only function in this grace-based relationship is to receive. It's the only thing we're qualified to do, just receive. It means that your salvation has nothing whatsoever to do with what you do, what you have done, what you do not do. It really has nothing to do with you other than just being the recipient. Grace means, and this is an incredible concept, so if you haven't heard this, drink this one in. Grace means that there is nothing that you can do to make God love or accept you any more than he does right now. And it means even more remarkably that there is nothing you can do to make him love or accept you any less than he does right now because it never had anything to do with you or what you did. It had to do with what Jesus did on the cross for you. And so we receive that gratefully. Ephesians 3, 8 through 9 says this, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves, it is the gift of God It's not by works so that nobody can boast. The reformers said it this way. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And probably there's nothing that I've said so far that anybody would argue with. And yet the body of Christ routinely suffers a continental drift away from grace. We're happy to receive it to begin, and then we proceed as though the rest of it depends on us. I want to share with you this evening three seemingly disconnected scriptures, but I believe they're connected in a really powerful way. So, So go ahead and take notes And if along the way you're thinking, I don't know where this guy is going with this, I'm going somewhere. So just hang in there with me. Sound good? All right, we're going to start with Exodus 24, 9 through 10. Um, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli as bright blue as the sky. So this is when Moses first encounters the Lord. 
and he sees him standing on the mountain, but it doesn't look like mountain. It looks like lapis lazuli. Lapis lazuli is a precious stone that is a beautiful blue with gold veins and flecks running through it. it uh, I'm gonna jump down to the Hebrew definition. Uh, the, the, the Hebrew word is sapir, S-A-P-P-E-E-R. And the Hebrew word sapir literally means sapphire. Um, what's interesting is that the, uh, the NIV interprets this word lapis lazuli. Um, and if we can go back to the, um, if we can go back to that NIV uh, verse, you'll notice that it says, um, this would be like uh, Exodus 29, 9 through, 24, 9 through 10, that previous scripture. Yeah, uh, they went up in 70 elders of Israel, in the next verse, and they saw the God of Israel. Now this is the King James version They saw the God of Israel and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. So the NIV and the KJV disagree on this. And um, and when when you look at the NIV version, it says that he was standing on on lapis lazuli and it looked as bright as the sky with gold. And so I think what the NIV writers did is they looked for a stone that was sapphire in color and had gold in it. And, uh, and I think we've got a picture of lapis lazuli here that we can show you. So that's, that's what lapis lazuli wor- looks like. And that's what NIV thought that uh, he, he saw. But in actuality, it really was sapphire that looks like this. This is sapphire. It's the, sort of the same color of blue. It uh, it's, has more transparency in it. And um, I think the, the NIV translators saw as the sky, they Im, uh, imagined this gold that looked like stars in the sky and they were drawn to that. Um, but I think the KJV gets it right. The KJV says that the Lord was standing on sapphire. And then in, in Exodus 31, 18, it says, when the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. And so what most Bible scholars believe is that literally the, the, God took his finger and he carved out of the mountain these, these tablets and then wrote his law on them and handed them to Moses. That means the tablets of the law were most likely carved in sapphire. That would have been beautiful and crazy heavy. Um, and he got two sets of them because, you know, you know what happened there. Um, so that means it, symbolically in scripture, sapphire equals the law. You with me so far? Okay. Now we're going to jump to Acts chapter 9. Let me set this passage up for you. The apostle Paul uh, was on the road to Damascus, and he never got to Damascus. No, he met the Lord along the way. 
And by the way, let me just say this to you. If uh, uh, so often uh, we make the mistake of thinking that when God calls us to a place, that it's a destination. But often it's not. Sometimes we, we think God calls us into a relationship and we think that's a destination, but it often isn't. It's a, it's a layover. It's easy to believe when God sets your feet on the road to Damascus that he wants you to go to Damascus. But it was never his intention for Paul to go to Damascus. It was just on that road that God confronted him. So I think one of the, one of the tough disciplines of the Christian life is learning to not get frustrated at God when he calls you to some place and it doesn't manifest the way you think that it would, the way that you think it should. You never know what he's going to accomplish along the way. And so if you're here tonight and your, your path has been frustrated, you started on a college degree, but it didn't work out, or you, you got into a job and you thought it was gonna be a destination, but it was just temporary, and, or you've been in a relationship and you thought this was gonna take it to the end and it just didn't. The other person didn't feel that way. I know it's easy to feel like a failure. It's easy to feel like you have let the Lord down. It's, it's easy to feel like maybe you must have done something wrong. But I'm just here to tell you, when the, quite often when God puts your feet on the road to Damascus, it's, it's never his intention for you to get there. Anybody receive that? Yeah. So Paul is on the road to Damascus and he meets the Lord in dramatic fashion. He was on his way to persecute and kill Christians, by the way. And so the Lord confronts him and, um, and he blinds him. And he tells Paul to go into town and wait. And so Paul is in total darkness and, and having to live with the knowledge of what he has done. Th- those must have been some dark days for our brother Paul. You know, I, I, I sort of bet that he was wishing God had just killed him. But that wasn't God's intention. Instead, God spoke to a man named Ananias, and here's what the scripture records. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named Tarsus. A man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, "Uh, maybe you haven't heard this, (laughs) but I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem And I am one of those, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. Just say yes, it's easy. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me here that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
I just, uh, anytime I run over a passage like this, I feel like I have to pause and point out, Paul got saved on the road to Damascus. That's where he met Jesus. He still needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. They're two different things. You're only born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the indwelling Holy Spirit that regenerates us from the inside out. So no one is born again without the Holy Spirit coming inside them. But that's not the same thing as being filled with the Holy Spirit, right? You with me? Um, being, being born again, being born of the Spirit is like drinking water. You got to have it to survive. That's what sustains you. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is like jumping in a pool. Totally different experience, and uh, I fully recommend it. All right. And immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again, and he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Ananias, what a, what a brave and obedient brother this was. He has a fascinating name, and it has tremendous prophetic significance in the Hebrew. It comes from two words. The first, Hanan, meaning gracious. And then, Yah, meaning God. So, Hananiah, which is his real Hebrew name, means God is gracious. Ananias represents grace. You see, Paul who should have received God's judgment, his punishment. He should have received his condemnation. He deserved hell for what he had done. And he's, he's there curled up in a ball in a room in Damascus, terrified. And through the door walks the grace of God. Unmerited favor. He didn't deserve it. He wasn't expecting it. And he received it in spades. Hallelujah. All right. Now I want to take you to an incident in Acts chapter 5. Here's how it goes. Now a man named Ananias, which means grace, right? Together with his wife, Sapphira, and sapphire means, have you guys been listening? The law. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So now a man named Ananias, Ananias which means grace, and his, together with his wife, Sapphira, which means also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, and he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think you could of doing such a thing? You've not just lied to a human being, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And then some young men came forward and wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. And about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. 
And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Now, I want to tell you something. <clears throat> there are uh, three times I can think of, and there might be more, uh, but at least three in the Bible when God um, acts what, in a way that feels completely irrational. Like, you know, he just, it, what it looks like in the story, he just kind of snaps and kills somebody, like he lost his temper. But the Lord never loses his temper. When you, whenever you see God do something that seems out of character for him, that should immediately alert you there is strong prophetic significance in what he did. And there is strong prophetic significance in what happens here. On the surface, this seems to be a story about deception. Don't lie to the Holy Spirit. And yet, let's be honest, the room was filled with people. There were much worse things going on in the congregation. This, this cannot be simply a punishment for sin. Sapphira represents the law, Ananias represents grace, and their marriage represents an unholy union between grace and the law. The law kills. That's what scripture says, and that's a good thing. The law declared us unfit. But worse than that, the law declared you and I dead on arrival. There is nothing any of us could do by the letter of the law to be in right standing with the Lord. It's like trying to jump the Grand Canyon. I mean, maybe you could jump 30 feet and I could jump only 20 feet and we're both dead at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. So maybe you're more straight-laced than I am and maybe you could do better in terms of the law, but if you're guilty of breaking even one command, you're guilty of breaking all the law and deserving of hell. And so the law declared us dead on arrival. Nothing we can do. And you want, to, you want proof that there's nothing we can do? For hundreds of years, they tried to live by the law. Not one person was successful outside of Jesus Christ. So the law kills. Grace brings resurrection. Grace brings life where formerly there was death. And that's good news. It's literally the Greek for the gospel. For by grace have you been saved through faith. It's not of works. There's no component of the law. If you incorporate the law, then you are subject to the law. The blending of these two produces great deception among God's people. If it's grace and the law, then I use God to kind of get me going and, and then I'm gonna live on my own merits until I fail. And then I'll use grace to get me out of the hole. And then I'm gonna run on my own. And then when I live that way, I naturally feel superior to you when I'm obedient. Of course. I mean, look at me. I'm so holy. Of course. 
Living by the law makes you feel superior to people when you achieve, makes you feel inferior when you fail. And there is no way to blend the law and grace. It's either all grace or it's not grace at all. It's either all grace or it's not grace at all. And when you marry grace and the law, what you guarantee yourself is death. There are patterns in scripture and probably none more pronounced than the pattern of how people relate to God. It happens over and over and over again. The cycle never changes. It started with Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was accounted to him as righteousness, right? And so Abraham had a sincere heart. But just a generation or two later, we start to see the drift. We start to see the descendants of Abraham feeling superior to all the other people on the face of the earth. The children of Israel have a tremendous swagger about them and they keep failing and collapsing and they become the custodians of the law. They become the gatekeepers, right? They, they, uh, the Pharisees uh, become the ones who can determine who gets in and who gets out. The Pharisees were separatists They were separatists because you need to live a holy life. And if you don't, we can't associate with you because we are so holy. We're so righteous. If you're any less righteous than us. So the Pharisees literally didn't interact with anybody. If you were were sick or infirmed, you weren't allowed to go near a Pharisee. If you were divorced, you weren't allowed to go near a Pharisee. You were unclean. You couldn't come near, and the devout weren't allowed to go near you. The morally compromised, the needy, the less than devout, they get shut out according to the Pharisees. And they were so rigorous in their religious convictions, they were, and and here's the thing that's crazy. Like even the Pharisees didn't realize they were Pharisees. They thought they were righteous. They thought they were doing it right. They they thought they were more devout than anyone on the face of the earth. And here's how blind they were. When the son of God himself came through the door, they rejected and killed him. These men of God, the most devout men. And so, The spirit of God moves away from the children of Israel. Jesus comes and he calls to himself fishermen, a tax collector, a a political zealot, these outcasts of society. 
these 12, this group of ragtag, dirty, uneducated men, and they certainly weren't spiritual. They certainly were not devout. A Pharisee would be caught dead hanging out with one of these guys. So that's who God looks to. And he calls them to himself, and his presence comes to rest on this group. And he literally shuts the door on the other group. Now, that other group went on unhindered. They still continue to this day, unabated. But the presence of God moved on to someone else. Jesus is crucified, buried. He rises from the dead. He ascends to heaven. And he leaves the gospel in the hands of these 11 followers and the other disciples who had gathered around him. And of course, they were on fire. They were devoted initially. But believing you have the truth, it has this effect. And they began to feel superior. They began, the early church began to develop hard hearts to the people around them. So do you know what God did? Peter is on a roof one day praying. And God comes to him and says, I want you to go to the house of a Roman soldier named Cornelius. And everything about this was wrong. As a holy man, he wasn't supposed to associate with Gentiles. He certainly wasn't supposed to go in a Gentile's house. Doesn't God know the rules? It's like God won't obey his own rules. So he goes and he steps in the house of this Gentile and he's like, so what's going on? What I'm, why am I here? And Cornelius says, well, the Lord told me to send for you, so what do you have to say? And I, I'm just promising you, it never entered Peter's mind that the gospel would be extended to the Gentiles. They were the unwashed masses. They're the outsiders. They're the fringe. And so I, I can just picture, forgive me, I'm the dramatist and me could just see this. So, you know, he's like, well... So there was Jesus, and he came, and we saw him heal people and feed thousands, and he was the son of God. And as he's talking, the Holy Spirit falls on these dirty Gentiles, and they start speaking in tongues. And he, go read it. He literally turns to his posse and says, well, uh, they obviously have been (laughs) baptized with the Holy Spirit. I guess we should just baptize him. Like he didn't know what to do. And it almost split the church. At the Jerusalem council, it came this close. The very first church came this close to a church split. Be at peace. (laughs) The very first church. As soon as the outsiders came in, were willing to check out and go. Because they started with grace, but they ended with the law. And their solution to the problem to this day gets under my skin. I know it was politic, it was compromised, so they sort of accepted them and then made them do some things that I wouldn't have done. 
That's right. And so, there's a revival among the Gentiles. An authentic move of God. They were part of the persecuted, the chased, the arrested. And there was tremendous revival in the earth. The, the, the news of, of Jesus' death and resurrection spread like wildfire. It spread so quickly and so, uh, so virulently that Christianity actually started to become popular. So popular that eventually it becomes the state religion of Rome. And church officials became government officials. And the government controlled houses of worship. They literally chained the word of God to the pulpit so that the unworthy couldn't get it. The only people allowed to read the Holy Scriptures were state-sanctioned priests. They, they literally codified and administrated shutting people out, keeping people at an arm's distance from God. And that persisted until a group of men said, wait a second, this is wrong. The gospel, they invented this phrase, the gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the church is wrong. And they started the Reformation, this ragtag. As soon as they said it, they were kicked out. Cancel culture, goodbye. Bye, Felicia, you're out. And they became the Protestants, but that's not how it was pronounced originally. It was the Protestants. They were chasing God in protest of what had become of their religion. It had been hijacked. And it would be difficult to even comprehend the impact of the Protestant Reformation. I mean, for sure, we're all here because of it. I mean, literally, the, the colonization of America was a bunch of hungry Protestants who were sick of the Anglican church. And they thought by coming and settling in this land, they could finally have freedom of religion, freedom from the government, freedom to worship God. And a revival started spreading all around the world. And this nation was founded by people who were zealous for the things of God. They were passionate. They were surrendered for a while. Do you see the cycle? Do you see how it works? And just, it's this, this revolving pattern where we encounter grace and then we, come, we become superior. It makes us exclusive, separatists. In the early 1970s, an unplanned, unwanted, sovereign move of God happened on the West Coast. And you know who it was among? The worst. The hippies. The unwashed masses. They were getting really saved. But they didn't automatically get sanctified. 
So they came into church in their bare feet, smelling like weed, still sleeping around, sometimes in groups. They would worship, then go smoke some hash. It took a while for sanctification to catch up with their salvation. And the church was having none of it. We don't want those people here. They should clean up their act before they come into the house of God. But if they could clean up their act, they wouldn't need the house of God. The house of God exists because it's an altar of mercy. Which of you came to the Lord perfected? I rather think some of us just became more skillful at hiding our sin. Dave Wilkerson, one of the heroes of the faith in my book, was one of the loudest voices in the 70s condemning the Jesus revolution. He was. He later on repented of all of that, but you can see interviews with him now. This is not a real thing. This is not real. They're not giving up their drugs. This is not real. But listen, Keith Green came out of that. I don't even remember how long he struggled with drugs and how long it took him to marry Melody after. But it takes a while for God to work these things out. The church, just like the Pharisees in Jesus' time, the church did not perceive the move of God. And the church became the strongest force in the earth resisting what God was doing. And doing it feeling righteous, feeling superior, feeling like they were doing the work of God. The, the New Testament even predicts it. It says, listen, a time is going to come when people will murder you and believe they're doing God a favor. That's how deceptive a blend of grace and the law is. That's how toxic Ananias and Sapphira are together. They, they didn't realize that they had become the Pharisees. Just like the Pharisees didn't know they were the Pharisees. At every turn, it's a group of people who feel self-righteous they get enough of God to feel like they can determine who can and can't come in. They guard the door of the church. They guard the gates of heaven. And if you want to get in here, you got to look like me. You got to believe just like me. As though I'm the standard. All right, so this is getting ready to get rough. And what I'm gonna share with you now is not a prophetic word. This is, God hasn't spoken this to me. But here's what I ask myself. Where's the next great move of God? Where's it coming? Oh, we want it here. We want, we want him to move among us. But that isn't how God rolls. Because he didn't come here, ladies and gentlemen. He didn't come to Graceland Church to create a Christian club. 
that you can hang out in and your kids can feel safe in and you can come get a pick-me-up on the weekends and have a pancake breakfast once in a while. That isn't why he came here. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. And if you want to know where the next great move of God is, then just ask yourself these questions. Who are the outcasts? Who are the unwanted? Who are the people we don't want here? I don't know how you would answer that question. Here's how we've answered that question at Tapestry and we are pressing the point. We are leading into this now. We're getting ready because we believe there's a move of God coming to the LGBTQ community. We believe that, that there's going to be a revival amongst broken people and they're gonna get saved, but they're not gonna get sanctified right away. They're gonna come in dressed like other genders. They're gonna come in holding hands of their partners. And for a season, they're going to chase God while doing all that. And we're gonna to have to bite our tongues and love them and disciple them. And what, whatever your answer is to that question, wherever you think the, the biggest outcasts are, then just put that people group in the blank. But here, I'm just making this prediction and someone write it down. I said it this day at this time. There is a revival of God coming among the fringe of society. And when it happens authentically, the people to resist it will be the church. And, and Graceland, you will either get on board with what God is doing or you will get left behind. And here's the tragedy. You won't stop having church. You won't. You'll keep going through the motions and slowly you'll use, lose the younger generation, and, and you'll, you, the, the club will get smaller and smaller as fewer and fewer people fail to uphold the standard. You got to throw them out and you, to, to ensure the integrity of what you're doing. And in time, you'll just become uh, insignificant in the kingdom and superior. This is a sobering word. You know, the first line and I know I'm gonna get myself in trouble, but our first line of defense of our hypocrisy is always our kids. It's always our kids. We, we gotta protect our kids. Um, we, our kids won't understand. Our kids will be confused. Can I tell you something? You know, we, like in our church, we, we have a bit of a homeless problem and people come in. It's not a problem. It's just, you know, something we have to deal with. And we've just made the decision we're gonna love them. And so we, we invite them to our Tuesday night dinners and we sit with them and we give them groceries and we, and of course, when you do that, you're gonna attract more uh, homeless people. And, um, and so here's, here's what we tell our kids and what we tell our kids ministry. So uh, here's the deal. Um, there are people in the world who don't believe like you and they make choices and the choices are painful and it takes them to a place of brokenness. And so we love them. Loving them doesn't mean we approve of what they do. It doesn't mean we're endorsing their, their decisions. And here's what we found. Kids get that. They really do understand it. That's easy. Here's what they don't get, hypocrisy. They don't get the adults saying one thing and behaving a different way. That is what's difficult for kids to process. But make no mistake, ladies and gentlemen, 
your kids are listening and they are learning from the things you say. They're either learning how it ought to be or they're concluding they never wanna be like that. But, but the, your kids are listening even now. There are many, many modern day Pharisees. I'll tell you a powerful truth about story. I learned this as a director years ago. When you put a play on stage or when you read a book or you watch a movie, the person who is reading or watching, um, they put themselves in the story. They see themselves in the story that they're watching. And here's the funny thing. When we watch a story, we almost always cast ourselves as the hero or the victim or both. That, that's where we always cast ourselves. So like the story that Jesus told um, about the, uh, the tax collector and the Pharisee who went into worship and the Pharisee bellowed out, Lord, I thank you that I am not like this dirty tax collector. And here are all the great things I do for you. I'm so glad I'm not like him. And the other man just knelt and prayed, God have mercy on me. And when we hear that story, we're always the tax gatherer. We're never the Pharisee. But Pharisees exist. And if you're not careful, if you're not vigilant, you will become one. If you don't daily dip into grace, unmerited favor, remind yourself of the cross and what God has done, you will find yourself becoming brittle and hard and judgmental. Um, what was that, what was it that, th- that thing that, that, uh, that Pastor Duncan said today? It's like, um, when you hate your sin more than other people's sin, that's evidence of grace at work in your life. That's not an exact quote, but it's something, it was so profound. I, I have it in my phone, but... Man, oh man, that's so profound. I hope you hear that. Hey, would you say that one more time slower for the people in the back? Here we go. The most spiritual person in the house is the person who hates his own sin more than he hates anyone else's. So powerful, so powerful. You can easily identify who the Pharisees are because they're the ones concerned about who cannot come, who is not allowed. They're the ones saying, surely he knows what manner of woman is washing his feet. This man eats with tax collectors? They usually whisper it. Hey, and, and it's usually as a prayer request. Hey man, pray for Pastor Nathan. You know the kind of people he's hanging with? I saw him in a bar. Man, I wish we had more pastors in bars. You can identify them because when people start really getting saved, like really getting saved, everyone is rejoicing, but they're worried. They're the elder brother. There's a party going on. Everyone's high-fiving and he's got his arms folded because this, there's something unjust about this. Now, there's just something I don't like about this whole scenario. I, you know, I have to confess, and I know some of this is gonna reflect poorly on me, but I have been watching 
fascinated the last two or three weeks at what has been happening in the Alistair Begg story. Is anyone on this? Yeah, so uh, let me just tell you real quick. Um, uh, and so I'll just make a couple full disclosures so you know where I'm coming from. Like, I think the greatest collection of modern day Pharisees are in the gospel coalition. I just, I'm, I know that's not a popular thing to say, but um, that said, I listen to those guys all the time. They're great teachers, an incredible collection of Bible knowledge. Um, and I disagree with them doctrinally on things, but my biggest problem is that they're just a bunch of haters. They have this strange fire concert conference where they just sit around and make fun of charismatics and it's all a big laugh fest. And, and you have John MacArthur telling Beth Moore, go home, you don't deserve to speak. Like it's just, it's just so un-Christ-like, their whole demeanor. I, I, but I still listen to them because I love Bible teaching. And Alistair Begg has been a part of that tribe and I really love Alistair as a Bible teacher, but I've heard him say some things that made me want to punch the radio. Um, and they're usually about who, who isn't allowed. Well, so a couple of weeks ago, Alistair was on a radio interview. He's promoting a new book that he's written, which I've read, The Gospel on the Plane. It's awesome. I love it and highly recommend it. Um, and in that interview... He told a story just in passing. And the story goes like this. A grandmother called me because she found out that her, her lesbian granddaughter was getting married. And the, daughter, the granddaughter called her and said, Grandma, with tears, it would mean so much to me if you would come to my wedding. And so this grandma is terribly conflicted because you're not supposed to go to gay weddings. So she called Pastor Begg, and he's telling this story on the radio. And um, he, he says to her, well, does your granddaughter know where you stand? And uh, she said, well, of course. And there's no doubt in her mind that your presence at this wedding would be an endorsement of it. Oh, certainly not, certainly not. He said, well, then, the most loving thing you can do is go and take a gift and love her partner as best you can and keep the lines open so that someday you can share the gospel. And for that, he has reaped the whirlwind. The monster that he was a part of has now consumed him. He was, uh, he was kicked off his radio show that he's had for 20 odd years, Family Radio Network, kicked him off within two days. He was kicked off the Gospel Coalition he was just recently uninvited to the Shepherds Conference at uh, John MacArthur's church. And he is being, now this is a guy who has been teaching the word of God faithfully for 40 years in the U.S. He's, been, he's pastored the same church for 40 years and they're leaving in droves because he committed the sin of saying you should love your granddaughter. But who are we to place demands on sinners? Let me say this, and you can write this down. Copyright Gary Spell, 2024. Sinners be sinning, yo. That's what they do. 
They're, they're lost. They're blind. They're deaf. Their God, is, their God is their belly. They're hopelessly lost. You can't demand of them that they behave like you before you let them near Jesus. What is wrong with us? Someone needs to say the bridge is out. This is wrong. And it's easy to look at them and call balls and strikes, but I'm just telling you, I'm, I'm warning you, Graceland, check yourself, steady your feet, uh, because if the really lost get really saved here, it's going to get really messy. That, where there is no ox in the stall, uh, there is no, there is no, uh, someone give me the rest of that. The, there's, it's clean, something like that. The Bible says something like that about oxen and being clean. That's what, yeah, so the best way to make sure there's no controversies, don't, get any, don't let any lost people in here. But then you have to ask, what is this for? Why are we here? Here's what the Bible says about God, and we need to get this in our bloodstream. He does not Treat us as our sins deserve, nor repay us according to our iniquities. But as high as the heaven is above the earth, so high is the love of God toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he separate our transgressions from us. That is his heart. You never reach out to God and have him pull out the little league rule book and tell you where you're wrong. It never happens. And nobody ever got saved because they were shamed into the kingdom. As though, as though, as though this, this granddaughter would stand at the altar committing her life to her partner, which by the way, just to be clear, not of God. My theology on sexuality is robust and orthodox. So I'm not signing off on her decisions. But listen, I'd be a fool to think that she would stand there and look out and see her grandmother not there in protest and go, oh gosh, you know, she's completely abandoned and rejected me. Maybe I should turn to Jesus. It's never going to happen. People don't get rejected into the kingdom. They get loved into the kingdom. I believe that God is calling us to return to preaching grace. Grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And when you see that with clarity, the only sin you're concerned with is the sin in your heart. Will you guys stand with me? Hey, I'd like to do, do something. I'm not sure if there's any in the room today. I can't really see. <clears throat> but do we have um, students here, like 17 and under? Are any of them here tonight? You? Hi. Great, great. There. Any others? Great, great. Can I get you guys to come down here? Can I get you guys to join me right down here? I want to tell you something. Any young people, 17 or under, 
Hey, how you doing? I'm, I'm not going to make you talk or sing or anything. Hey, how's it going? Good to see you guys. <clears throat> I want to tell you something, and then I want to pray for you. Um, so uh, a few years ago, I went to this, uh, I went to this management training uh, at Disney World. They have an incredible management program. And Disney loves and cares for people the way the church ought to. They just do a tremendous job. So I went down there to get some management training. And they said something really cool in one of the sessions. Here's what they said. They said, when it comes to our policies and procedures, um, one of our core values is this. If it feels wrong, it probably is. If it feels wrong, it probably is. That means they empower their employees, all the employees, to look around, and if they see something that feels wrong, according to the Disney values, anybody can blow the whistle. And they get a hero's reception. So, so one example that they gave is that uh, a few years back, they had a frontline employee, just like a, just someone working the rides, who submitted a card, and they had a picture of the card that they turned in, and they said, um, one of Disney's core values is hospitality. And they turned in a card that said, it is, it's not hospitable to make people wait in long lines. And as a result of that submission, they went to work and they created, they were the creators of the fast pass system. And they did several iterations of that. And then they kept improving it and they came up with Genie and Genie Plus and all these things. They keep, they keep moving the industry forward. And then they came up with a way to shorten queues in stores and all, all because somebody said, this doesn't feel right. And this is where you play an incredibly important role in this church. Because the adults here have been doing church a long time. And we get used to the way things are. But you guys, you have the ability to look and say, hey, that doesn't feel right. Something about this doesn't fit. And you become a really important voice in the life of this church. Can I show you something about that Bible story we just looked? You remember the story... Uh, Ananias and Sapphira, and the God smites them dead. I, I want to show you something that maybe you haven't seen before. Check this out. Can we put up that, uh, that, la that last couple verses? <clears throat> Look, then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. And then when Sapphira dies, it says this, then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. This, this story has prophetic significance about the church's tendency to go wrong. And I'm convinced that in the days ahead, it is you who will carry the hypocrisy out of the church. It is the, it is the young men and women who will sniff it out and say, this doesn't feel right. Let's carry out the hypocrisy and get back to what God called us to. So that, that means you become a really important voice in this church and in your generation. I hope, I hope you hear me. I'm not, I'm not just placating you. I think you bring something to the table this church desperately needs. So church, I would love it if you guys would come in around these guys. And uh, I know there are other young people in this church, but you're just gonna stand in for them. And I just wanna pray for the young people um, of Graceland Church. 
This church is named Graceland. It just occurred to me. Yeah. Yeah, I just noticed that. Graceland. Thank you, Jesus. Guys, can we just pray in the spirit over these young people? Thank you, Jesus. We bless your name. We bless your name. In Jesus' 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 name. Wow, there's a tremendous organic love for the Lord in your heart. God's hand is on you in a profound way, young man. God's hand is on you in a profound way. And you've sensed that God is calling you to something significant. And I just want to affirm that that's true. God is calling you to something bigger than you can possibly imagine. And your love for God is going to drive it. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name. Baptize her in fire, Lord Jesus. Burn away everything that isn't of you. Hear the cry of her heart. Draw her near to yourself. Enfold her in your arms. God, I pray grace. I pray grace.
Hallelujah, hallelujah. Hey guys, I wanna share something with you. Uh, I really feel compelled to do something. Uh, this feels a little weird, but I, I'm just gonna go with the Lord. So we talked last night about uh, God building the, uh, um, the second temple, right? Zerubbabel comes from exile to rebuild this temple. And he and his team were greatly discouraged. The Bible says that, that what they saw was a magnificent pile of rubble where the, where the temple used to stand. And they didn't have anywhere near enough money and they didn't have the resources or the skill to rebuild the temple. And the Bible says that their hearts were waxing afraid and weak. And, and this is what the Bible says, um, that God spoke to Zerubbabel and here's what he said. This is the word of the Lord to you, Zerubbabel. Not by might and not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And then he says this. What are you, mighty mountain? He's speaking to the mountain of rubble that's in front of him. He says, what are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. And then we will bring out the capstone, that's the cornerstone. We will bring it out to shouts of God bless it. But once again, the NIV gets it wrong because the Hebrew word used here means grace. He will bring it out. You'll see this mountain disappear before you. And then we're gonna bring out the cornerstone of something new to shouts of grace. Ladies and gentlemen, grace is our banner. That's our flag. That's our word. And I want to do something that's completely insane. <laughs> but I feel like the Lord told me today, he just brought the scripture in my mind. I want to shout grace over this room. I want, to, I want to declare grace over everything that God is doing here. And I'm just trusting that the Lord has something in mind here. I, you don't need to shout grace. He's telling me, I mean, feel free, but I, I'm, I'm not twisting your arms. I'm just trying to be obedient to the Lord. But God is going to build something extraordinary here. But the cornerstone, the capstone will be grace. 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 God, I declare this over people who are yet to come. Grace. We declare the work of the Lord will be grounded in grace.
have anyone in your life, in your circle, who's completely lost in sin? Anyone? I'm not gonna ask you to say it, but is there anyone who's completely confused, completely lost, up is down, down is up? Is there anyone? Can you picture them in your heart right now? Can you imagine these shouts of grace paving a path from here to their door? Can you just, because I think if you'll picture that over the person you love, you will, you will get the mission of this church to create a road of grace, of grace. No mixture of law. It's not about us. It's not about what we can do. It's all what he has done. Father, we lift our voices and we pray for those who are separated from you. You came to seek and save the lost. And the truth is, uh, the, the religion without grace is repulsive. God, draw people by your loving kindness. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. Forgive us for looking so little like you, for talking so little like you. God, change the words of our mouth and let our children hear them. Let us pray for those who are separated from you and not judge them. Not judge them by their political party or their gender identification or any of that nonsense. That's how the devil categorizes people. You see them as children separated from you and over their lives we declare grace. Grace. Oh Jesus. Oh Jesus, oh Jesus, oh Jesus, oh Jesus. Prodigal's coming home in Jesus' name. Yes, yes, sing that, brother. Let the prodigals come on home in Jesus' name. Yes, yes, yes. The prodigal's coming home in Jesus' name. The prodigal's coming home in Jesus' name. God, we pray that the prodigal's come on home in Jesus' name. Let the prodigal's come on home in Jesus' name. Yes. Let the prodigal's come on home in Jesus' name. Let the prodigals come on home in Jesus' name. Cause there is grace, 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 yes. Cause there is grace. question uh, for you. Uh, I, this is just going to be some specific people, and it may only be one or two of you, but I just really feel in my spirit that this is something that I need to do. Is there anyone here, you have someone in your life who is living a lifestyle you object to, and it's created a crisis for you internally? Like you don't know how you ought to respond. You don't know how you're allowed to respond. Anybody in a situation where you just feel conflicted and you don't know what to do? I want to pray for you specifically. Anybody? Thank you, brother. Anybody else? Yes, sister, I see you. I see you. I see you. 
I see you. Now, listen, here's what I want to tell you. I am, I see that, brother. I see you. Um, I am not your senior pastor, but I think I have his permission. I can speak with his authority here. I want, I want you guys to look at me. Here's what I want to tell you. In the name of the Lord, I give you permission to just love them. I release you from any responsibility. They're not going to receive your love as an endorsement of their behavior. They already know. I release you to just love them. I release you to just love them. And the only question you have to ask is, how do I love them? How can I love them better? And, and I promise you, I promise you, they're not going to take your love as a benediction over their choices. They, they, they most likely already know that you don't approve. Your love will prove to them that God hasn't abandoned them. I set you free in Jesus' name to love your friend. I set, listen, I set all of you free. You don't have to declare that they're wrong. You don't have to tell them. You don't have to withdraw, fellow. You can love them. In the name of the Lord, I give you permission. Who is over here? Who, who raised their hand? I, I give you permission in the name of the Lord to just love them. I release you from the obligation to correct them or to, to uh, somehow try to change their choices by your disapproval or by withdrawing. I, I release you in the name of Jesus to just love them. Brother, I, I give you permission. You, you have the permission of this church to just love them. You don't, you, and it may even be that there are folks in your family who will lean on you because it feels like you're, they're not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to the Lord. You're an ambassador of the King. So your response to them should model his response to them. And what's his response to them? Grace. It's grace. It's just not complicated. It really is not as complicated as we make it. So in Jesus' name, Father, I pray over all these, and I may have missed some. I wanted to make eye contact with all of them because I felt like you told me to. But, but Lord, I pray over everyone in this room who is conflicted over choices that people they love make. They're conflicted because their hearts want them to come to truth. They want them to know you, and it feels like they're headed over a cliff. And in some ways, it feels like by loving them, we're kind of holding their hand as they go over the cliff. But the cliff is not our responsibility. That's yours. And you're able to perform all sorts of miracles. But for sure, if we reject them, we lose the platform to speak into their lives at all. So God, we're just gonna follow the law of love and we're gonna trust you to work out the details. And we're gonna ignore the voices of the Pharisees who are telling us we're unspiritual or weak uh, because we've chosen to love them. Lord, not, that's all a lie of the enemy and who wants to make us just another group of Pharisees judging people and being separatists. And God, I pray that in this house, and I know this is a reckless prayer, but I pray that the really lost will get really saved in this house. And, and Lord, we pray, we know that that creates complexities. We know there are gonna be difficult decisions to make. <laughs> there are gonna be meetings. We're, we're, ready for, we're ready for all of that. God, I pray that uh, Nate and Jess would get together an army of men and women who are ready to disciple people, um, people with a strong constitution, not easily off put by moral failure. Um, and uh, God, if you will bring them here, we will receive them and we will lead them to you and we will disciple them in Jesus' name. 
God, I pray in Jesus' name that grace, this land of grace that we're sitting on. Man, what a prophetic name, brother, you gave this place. That this would be a place where the lost can meet their father. Where they can come on this land, step on this land and feel grace. That as they approach this altar, that they would encounter, listen, the mercy seat. Not the judgment seat. Not the, not the condemnation seat. Not the step it up. What kind of a sissy are you seat? The mercy seat. The place where you come to receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Make it so, God. May these walls just ooze with grace and mercy. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Bless your name. Church, can we thank uh, Pastor Gary for this word tonight? Before we leave, I had just three things that I felt we should do uh, as our response. One was just briefly, I wanted to tell you, Gary already knows this about, about me and Jess, and it's probably why you're comfortable sharing this here. But Jess and I have had such a heart um, for those that are really, really lost and need a very, very real Jesus. And almost like a boredom with anything except for that. Um, I remember writing a sermon in a coffee shop, Los Angeles, on the message of reconciliation, which scripture says that he's entrusted to us, the gospel of grace, the good news. And then sitting right next to me was a gay couple, two dudes, talking about their relationship <laughs> that God just kind of, I, I feel like, allowed me to be privy to for the entire time I was writing this sermon and I was struck by the juxtaposition of I'm writing the message for them. <laughs> I'm sitting right next to them and they were talking uh, at some points in their conversation about how just outcast they've been. And I was able to, to bridge relationship with them and Jess and I, by God's grace and hopefully more and more, have been able to be in many people's lives. Uh, but it's interesting in Bible Belt context, which is where we are now. You guys know what I mean by Bible Belt? So we're in a place, there's lots of churches, there's lots of buildings, there's lots of like Christian industry, there's, there's all this. It is easy to slip more into the superiority feeling, especially in like this year is going to have a lot of like rallying cries because of all the things going on in our nation. And um, I felt like one, and I'm, I'm right here with you, we should, we should bow our hearts before the Lord. And you can only do this for yourself. But you know, we're invited to celebrate repentance in our walk with the Lord. So this isn't condemnation. But you know, there, God invites us to genuine repentance. Because you know, you know who's got, who, 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 who God's heart breaks for right now is his lost children. And of course, it's not just people in the gay community. Although I am so in line and have talked with many about how wouldn't it be just like God for the next great awakening to be sparked in that community? Doesn't mean they're going to stay there, but wouldn't it be just like him to do that? And, and church, if you're with me on it, just can we just pray a prayer of saying, God, forgive me. If that's you, just pray it for yourself. It's repentance. 
truth is we all slip into this as Gary pointed out in that message. We are not alone. God, forgive us for self-righteousness, for a sense of superiority, for sometimes even have a, having a sense of gatekeeping, who gets in, who gets out, for, for even if it's nothing we've ever acted on, just having thoughts where we are elevated so close to you, so wonderful with you, and others are pushed away. And Lord, we just pray. First, we just say, God, forgive us. Forgive us. Thank you that when we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Uh, but then let's say, God, we commit to being a place of grace. And let's say this first, I commit to being a person of grace. I commit, Lord, to being a person that if you send people my way, you want me to welcome into the family of God, I will do it. I say yes to it. I say yes to the complexity of it. I say yes to the stuff I don't understand. I say yes even when it, it's uncomfortable and I don't, I don't know what you're doing, but, I, but God, you have us there holding out the message of reconciliation and we say yes. And let's pray it as a church. Lord, we commit to live up to our name. We say yes to being a land of grace. Would you bring great awakening, great revival, spiritual renewal, and let it start with whoever you want and let them be here. God, would you just let them be here? Lord, we commit ourselves to them, to love, to disciple, to train in the ways of Jesus, to welcome into the family. We say this a lot, but did you know God has a, has a place at his table for everyone? He welcomes them there with their name on it. So God, may we expand our table. We say yes to you, Lord. And then... Can we just sing? Did you guys have prepared, uh, what a beautiful name. Can we sing this song and, and uh, raise our hearts, raise our voices? We're going to sing this. We're singing the name of Jesus, what a beautiful name. But let's sing it as a prayer, welcoming the lost home, welcoming the prodigal's home. Get that person in your heart and your mind. Get the coworkers. It might even be, I, I thought of a few people while we were just standing here today that I haven't thought of in a while that God just reminded me, I've sent you to them. <laughs> he just reminded me. So let's sing this song as an act of prayer. Sing it as a declaration over what God wants to do. It is the name of Jesus. Let's sing. You were the word at the beginning. Didn't want heaven without a 
could not hold you, the veil tore before you, silence the boast of sin and grace. heaven singing, the angels roaring, all creation singing out praise to this God. And aren't you glad he freely welcomed us in? He freely gave us mercy and we can freely offer mercy. Aren't you glad it's uncomplicated for us? Aren't you glad that when we lean into a divine altar call and the Lord sparks awakening and revival and he stirs in us and he reminds us of the weight of his glory and his presence and he invites us to host his glory, he also reminds us, hey, this is not just for you. Hey, this is for those that are the most desperate people in the world right now. This is for those that are on the street right now suffering. This is for those at the very end of their rope about to take their life. And you might be here tonight and feel at the end of your rope. You maybe are here tonight and you've not felt welcomed into the kingdom. You may be here right now and you've never fully surrendered your life to the person of Jesus. With their eyes closed, if you, if you want to just say yes tonight, 
I definitely want to pray for you. Can you raise up your hand before we go? I see those. You can put them down. Lord, we thank you that heaven throws a party when we say yes wholeheartedly to you. We thank you that regardless of what's in our life, no matter how prodigal, meaning no matter how far we've run, when we turn around, you're right there. This is our experience with you. And so we thank you for those that run home tonight. Thank you that heaven throws a party in their honor. I don't know about you guys, but I get really bored thinking about doing this apart from people coming home to the kingdom. Anybody with me? Like, I'm kind of uninterested if we're not doing that, personally. There's two big things that I always think of, Pastor Gary. I'm really uninterested if it's not the real sense of God's power breaking through, like the reality of God, because it just kind of feels like, what are we doing? I also feel very uninterested if it's not people coming home. My dad used to tell me there's that verse that says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. You guys know that verse? The joy of the Lord is your strength. And a lot of times we think, oh, God's joyful. And if we can connect to his joy, that's going to be our strength. But my dad challenged me once, and I don't know if this totally checks out theologically, but I'll just submit it to you. My dad used to tell me, well, if you really ask yourself, what is the joy of the Lord? What am I hearing? Is that someone's phone? Thank you. I was like, that's off key. I was like, is I that? I was like, and we're having a weird spiritual moment. Like, yeah, is that what? the sound of heaven? Yeah. Leave it to Jim Bozeman. It's always going to be. <laughs> Maybe that was God telling me, don't share what you're about to share. <laughs> no, no, I think this is really profound. And we'll close here in a minute. Can you get ready to do the chorus of, uh, of um, or, or just the first verse into the chorus of, uh, and the angels cry, holy forever? Um, my dad said, what is the joy of the Lord? Jesus is our Lord, right? Jesus said, or it was said of Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy set before Jesus that he would have on the other side of the cross? The salvation of souls. The lost coming home. What is the joy of the Lord? The lost coming home. What is our strength? The lost coming home. Have you noticed? We struggle the most in our life the more we are obsessively thinking about us and forgetting the mission. <laughs> and when Pastor Gary shared and his experience of seeing that couple in his church just recently come home, he steps into the joy of the Lord. When believers go year after year after year and then decade after decade after decade, not being a part of the lost coming home, it becomes like a joyless thing. Like we're meant to be in the mission. It's boring apart from that. I'm not, you know, don't get me wrong. Don't like quote me on that. The Lord is wondrous and amazing and not boring, but we're on the mission. Anybody tracking with what I'm saying? So um, can we sing just one more? So, are you, yeah? Um, one more. Let's just do uh, this and the, the verse, the, the pre-chorus a few times and the chorus a couple times and then we'll, we'll close out. Because I just couldn't get out of my mind the angels sing and we're just gonna join them. Let's sing it. thousand generations 
Come on, let's sing this out. Falling down in worship, singing the songs of ages to the Lamb. And all who've gone before us, and all who will believe, will sing the songs of ages to the Lamb. Your name is the highest. Your name is the highest. Your name is the greatest. Your name stands above them all. All thrones and dominions, all powers and positions. Your name stands above them all. And all the angels cry. that pre-chorus your name all the angels cry holy all creations cry holy you will lift it high holy holy forever just do one more time with our voices and the angels All creation cries, holy, you will lift it high, holy, holy forever. Let's just close with this. Uh, I'd like to ask you to ask the Lord, who can I bring with me tomorrow that needs to be welcomed into the family of God? Sometimes people don't come because we don't invite them. So think about your neighbors. Think about your friends at school, students. Think about your coworkers. We're going in tomorrow, into tomorrow night with great prayer, great faith, great expectancy. Gary's gonna share another message. He will certainly include the, the message of the good news, welcoming people home into the family. And let's just get in our mind. And Lord, we pray for these that are in our minds right now. Uh, we pray that they would return home to the family of God. And we pray that they will that you will use us, God, to welcome them in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love you guys very much. We're dismissed. Say hi to some people. <laughs>